The recipes from HelloFresh are delicious. Break out of your dinner rut with HelloFresh's 22-plus seasonal chef-curated recipes each week. Now, you don't get 22 recipes. You get a limited number of recipes, but that's 22 recipes to choose from. There's something for everyone, including low-calorie, vegetarian, and family-friendly recipes every week. HelloFresh cuts out stressful meal planning and prepping so you can enjoy cooking and get dinner on the table in just about 30 minutes or even 20 minutes if you use a quick option. Although if you are really that pressed for time, the difference between 20 minutes and 30 minutes is meaningful to you. Slow down, my friend. HelloFresh's pre-portioned ingredients mean there's less prep for you and less food waste. The packaging HelloFresh uses to ship your food is almost entirely made from recyclable and or already recycled content. Add extra meals or lunches to your weekly order. Throw in yummy sides and desserts like garlic bread and cookie dough. The garlic bread is probably not a dessert. Easily change your delivery days or food preferences and skip a week whenever you need. There's a wide variety of recipes available. I think that's probably what I like about it. Um, My husband and I usually do something like a calorie smart dinner once a week. We kind of reverse the whole cheat day protocol. There's deliciously sinful things like pork ragu rigatoni. And then there's loaded bean and veggie chili, which is delicious and good for you. And, you know, you're probably going to get fewer calories if that's something you're concerned about. HelloFresh is now $5.66 per serving. Go to HelloFresh.com slash WithFriends10 and use the code WithFriends10 during HelloFresh's New Year's sale for 10 free meals, including free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash WithFriends10 and use code WithFriends10 during HelloFresh's New Year sale. That is 10 meals for free with free shipping. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These. I just wanted to drop in before the conversation really gets started and let you know that today's episode contains some pretty intense references to sexual assault and sexual harassment. If that's not something you feel like you can sit with today, then you might want to save it for later, or I will understand if you skip it entirely. And remember, if you have experienced sexual assault yourself, there's no such thing as not that bad. And there are people you can talk to if you're ready. Reach out anytime to Rain at the National Sexual Assault Hotline. Their number is 800-656-4673. On to the show. You know Peggy Ornstein, or you know about her. She wrote the best-selling book, Girls and Sex, as well as Don't Call Me Princess. She's a contributing writer to New York Times Magazine. She's written for the Los Angeles Times, Washington Post, Elle, New York, The Atlantic, and The New Yorker. She is an expert on girls and sex, as the book title says. And a few years ago, she realized that she should probably also do some research on boys, that we're at a critical moment in terms of burgeoning masculinity. The Me Too movement, Brett Kavanaugh, the admitted sexual assailant in the White House. All of these things make it incredibly urgent that we understand how boys' view of sexuality, gender, and having sex is developing. I was privileged to interview her in front of a live audience recently. 
It was an incredible conversation. She's wonderful. Uh, Spoiler alert, I actually got a little emotional at one point. I think you'll love it. I certainly did. Coming right up, Peggy Ornstein. The first thing I want to get out of the way is something you address straight on in the book, which is there's a very specific population that you interviewed for this yeah. book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I, I interviewed the same population that I talked to in Girls and Sex, which was guys who I, I talked to over 100 guys um, who were either um, college bound or in college. Uh, but beyond that kind of educational aspect, they came from all over the country. They came from big cities. They came from small towns. They were of different ethnicities. They were of different sexual orientations and gender identities. Um, so there was a very they, there was a very broad group within that. But yes, that was my education. And largely white. Um, yes, but in this book, I feel unlike, uh, or I don't want to say unlike because that sounds negative, but um, I went beyond what I did in Girls and Sex and learned from what I did in Girls and Sex and overrepresented boys of color, gay boys, trans boys, um, to sort of correct a little bit for that. And also I wanted to add that I think that even if the population that you looked at is, again, sort of this very privileged, mm-hmm. college-bound, white, uh, mostly cis, obviously, although yeah. you did represent LGBTQ and trans, uh, that's the dominant culture. Right. The, those are the people that they're for, laying it out they're for better or for the worse. Yeah, they are making the rules. Yep, yep. And their masculinity. I mean, we could go right to this. One of the things that was really, if you want me to talk about boys of color, without any further ado, but or do you want to wait? You want to wait. We can go to that later. <laughs> <laughs> Who's running this interview? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, you're we'll the okay. Uh, okay. Well, I kind of just wanted to lay out. Yeah. Again, this is just to sort of set the table, mm-hmm. which is why you wrote this book. You had focused right. on women and girls for years. 25 years. 25 mm-hmm. years. And it sounds like there was a realization on your part, like a personal realization, like I need to do this other thing. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I, you know, for 20, you all know, for 25 years I've been writing about women's, women and girls. And when I went around um, the country with, with Girls and Sex, when that came out, Everywhere I went, pretty much, people would say, you know, parents, girls, boys themselves would say to me, when are you going to write about boys? And I kind of say, well, you know, that's somebody else's job. You know, I I worried that, for one thing, that boys don't really have a reputation for chattiness. And I thought that perhaps I would end up with um, entire transcripts of, uh (laughs) uh-huh. That worried, that seriously worried me. Um, but the more I thought, you know, I, I, I realized that the more I thought about it, that nobody was talking to boys and nobody was listening to them um, to hear what they had to say about sex and intimacy and masculinity in a new era. And then as I was thinking about all of that, um, the Me Too movement exploded. And suddenly the kind of um, breadth of the problem of harassment and misconduct and assault became so readily apparent across every sector of society. And it became imperative that we reduce sexual violence, but it also felt to me like suddenly this tremendous opportunity and this kind of like crack in the edifice where we could, in a really positive way, engage young men in long overdue conversations about all these issues, because we have to know what's in their heads or we can't really guide them to make the best choices. I think the term crack in the edifice is a a really good metaphor because 
one of the realizations I had in reading this book, well, it comes it comes clear actually in the conversations you had with young men of color and LGBTQ young men uh, and trans people, which is marginalized populations or non-centered populations kind of have to know what the dominate, mm-hmm. dominant population is thinking. And so I I wasn't, sh- <laughs> let's say I was shocked by things in this book, <laughs> but it's not that I felt like I got men wrong because mm-hmm. we've had to know women have to understand what men want. You know, that's a survival, literally yeah. a survival instinct. You know, people of color have to, want, have to know what white people want. That's a survival thing. What I was shocked by was how self-aware they were. Right. What they knew about themselves. Yes. Yeah. That was really exciting. Yeah. And how much they were wrestling with these issues, right? How that you're right. To me, that was the biggest surprise. And I always frame it as saying, you know, more than any conclusion, their desire to talk blew me away. Just the very fact of that and how honest and candid they were and how able they were to narrate their interior lives. I just really didn't, like I said, uh huh. You know, like I didn't expect that to be true. They were just waiting to be asked. They were waiting to be asked. They were waiting to be given permission. And that's the crack in the edifice, I feel like. I had an interview with Anne Helen Peterson a few weeks ago about burnout in the millennial generation. Mm-hmm. And I actually feel it's related to this. Interesting. <laughs> in that one of the things that she picked out from uh, millennial burnout was that it's a generation that's incredibly self-aware, incredibly connected, incredi- incredibly absorbed in their own thoughts and other people's thoughts all the time. And there's a rawness to this. Mm-hmm. And yet there's also a lack of capability to deal with all those emotions mm-hmm. that are available to them and that they know are happening. They're unable to name these emotions. Yeah. And to, what I talked about with her is I feel like it's a generation of addicts and alcoholics. Not that they're literally addicted to these things, mm-hmm. but that they... It's a compulsive behavior. They move in the world in a way that I, as in-person recovery, really recognize. Mm. Like the, some of the behaviors you describe in here. Mm-hmm. Let's get to those behaviors. Okay. <laughs> like I said, I wasn't... No, I'm going to say it again. I, I was shocked to have my worst suspicions confirmed in some ways. Like, I had always assumed that the depictions of young people in the media hooking up and whatnot, that that was all fantasy. You point out that it's right and wrong. It's right and wrong. Yeah. The, that, so one of the things I talk about is the difference between a hookup and hookup culture. A ho- the word hookup is uh, intentionally ambiguous. And because it allows people, it means nothing. It might mean kissing, it might mean groping, it might mean grinding, might mean grinding, it might mean group sex, you don't know what it means. Um, it just, all that we know is that something happened and it allows young people to overestimate what their peers are doing, which can put pressure on you to either engage in unwanted sex or to be a little pushy. Um, in reality, and when they look at college um, kids, about 30 to 40% of hookups include intercourse about another 15 to 20% are oral sex, and the rest are kissing and groping. Um, and while 10%, 10 to 15% of kids will hook up more than 10 times in college, 25% will not do it at all. And for the rest, the average number of partners is seven. So not exactly the fall of Rome. And I think that, Well, that's also just if you assume that sex is the fall of Rome, right? right. Like well, one, of, exactly. one of the interesting things in the book, like I feel like we could just spend the whole interview talking about the definition of sex. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because like you just said, like hookup means something different than probably most of us 
old thought it meant. It, it encompasses this well, wide... They want to believe that. I mean, that, that you don't know what it means. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Nobody knows what it means. They don't know what it means. <laughs> that there's this, like, simultaneous sophistication, which is, comes from porn, which comes from media, which yeah. comes from this constant connectivity. Uh, so there's a sophistication or appearance of sophistication or a sense, a feeling of sophistication combined with utter inability to be able to talk about Right. These things. Right. Absolutely. And and utter inability of the adults in their lives to engage in conversation. So that you're right. Kids are absolutely steeped in um, sexualized media, in porn culture, um, in this idea that um, you know uh, sexual conquest is the ideal, and hooking up and you know building up your body count is is what's going to be um, the the fun thing to do, and what's going to reinforce your masculinity and give you status. While simultaneously, you know, being told, um, you know, you need to be consensual, you need to respect women from the culture, and then nobody's actually telling them what's real. You know, nobody's telling them, talking to them in any honest way. And that respect women piece, you know, what does that mean? Like, which women and who? And it's like, it's like if somebody tells you, um, don't run, any, run over any little old ladies, and then hands you the car keys. You know, you don't think you're going to run over any little old ladies, but you don't know how to drive. (laughs) So if you had to describe your findings, like Mm -hmm. the typical boy in America today, like how would you describe him? Um, You know, I guess the way that I would think about it is I, I keep thinking about the books side by side and how they kind of interact with each other. And what, like if I had to do one line on girls and one line on boys to describe um, what, what the books were about, I would say that girls and sex was about the way that girls were disconnected from their bodies and their desires. And boys and sex is about the systematic way that boys are disconnected from their hearts and emotional vulnerability. And the impact of both of those things um, radiates outward, not only affects them and their gender and the way that they perform gender and all of that, but radiates outward and affects their romantic partners as well. It's patriarchy. It, it, oh, yes. <laughs> the patriarchy. It, well, it is, because the thing is that they're, so, they're told by the culture that yeah. their pleasure and their feeling, well, no, I shouldn't say feelings, their pleasure, uh, their physical, like literal feelings, um, and who they are is the most important thing in the world. Well, they're told that the boys will learn that their pleasure is more important than women's feelings. And it's one of the things that became really important to me in, in thinking about this and thinking about sort of some of the lessons that some of the, at the end of the book, I did something that I didn't do in my other books. And I'm much more prescriptive. Um, in other books, I did the journalism thing of showing and not telling and, you know, like profile somebody or something like this. But one of the things that I really talk about is how to make gender dynamics visible to boys because they tend not to be. And I talk a lot about, you know, balancing positive and negative and all these things, but um, but boys need to know things like that. They tend to vastly overperceive yes, especially when they're drunk. And they are prone to thinking that any act of friendliness on the part of a female um, indicates that it's on. And when boys will say, you know, I'm not a ma- mind reader, she didn't say no. I think, yeah, well, you're pretty darn clairvoyant where it com- when it comes to yes. You know, and, and, and boys will also, are also, also learn um, you know, this is socialization. This is not some innate quality that um, consent to one act, like kissing, is consent to everything, or that 
you know, an invitation to a place like a room, a dorm room, is consent. Um, they tend to, again, especially when drunk, it's harder. They, they tend not to perceive no um, or a partner's hesitation. So there's these dynamics that get magnified in hookup culture, that get magnified when kids are drunk, um, that we don't talk about very much with boys and that they need to be, you know, seriously aware of when they're going into these social scenes. There's a part of the book that may almost seem like the opposite of sex to some people that I found fascinating, which had to do with jokes, mm-hmm. hilariousness. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a show on MTV that's called like hilariousness, right? Some like skateboarder hosts it. I'm only bringing it's it up. Wrong crowd. Yeah, man. I know. <laughs> I, as a former MTV host, probably should know. Yeah. Um, ridiculousness, that's it. But I'm, I'm thinking of it in the same way because it's about physical, it's an all physical comedy show. They like mm-hmm. show like people getting hit in the nuts, you know, yeah. like kind of thing, like skateboard that's pranks. Hilarious. Uh, see? You had this, there's this, tell us about hilariousness in the life of boys. Well, like I'm such it, a, it connects exactly. Yeah, I'm such a word nerd. You yeah. Know? So I get really, you know, I, I, I get really excited when, when I start thinking, I keep hearing that word. What does that word mean? And, and I really thought a lot about how, the, how boys used the word hilarious or funny um, and the way that it was like safe haven in their masculinity. Like you're never going to be marginalized. You're never going to be targeted. Um, you're never going to be bullied if you can default to hilarious. And they use it when something is um, repugnant or upsetting or violates their ethics or combines sex and aggression in a way that is disturbing. Um, Because if they express any of those feelings, that would be, you know, um, stepping outside the man box. That would be breaking the codes, breaking the silence. Um, So instead, if you default to hilarious, you know, it's okay. But it's also a way that another way that boys' heads and hearts are severed. It's also another way that their heads and consciences are severed. It's also another way that their empathy is subverted because you can't have empathy for that, the subject of that hilarity. So at the far end of that spectrum, what I started noticing was that in some of the really high profile rape cases in high school, like the Steubenville, Ohio case, um, when they talked to the boys about that, they would say, we didn't realize we were doing anything wrong. We, We thought it was hilarious. You know, that's where they go with that. So it became very interesting to me to look at how hilarious, you know, subverted empathy and again, subverted that idea of vulnerability that I think is really at the core of this book very much. Yeah, I I saw the discussion of humor and hilarity as like the surface thing that everyone can see that gives away this more intimate problem or right. lack of intimacy problem, Yeah. right? Well, and the, and the wall that boys put up, yeah. right? I mean, it's all about this, so much of what boys talk to me in terms of feelings, which was bizarrely what they wanted to talk about, to my surprise. Um, not bizarre, actually. I think it was really, there were really good reasons for it, but was about this wall that they put up between, you know, what they really feel, their authentic feelings and the world. And that, you know, they would say things like, I trained myself not to feel or, um, you know, I never cry, or, or the boy who uh, said he wanted to cry when his parents got divorced, but he couldn't, so because he had trained himself not to cry. So he streamed three movies about the Holocaust back-to-back. You know, that worked. Um, <laughs> and again, it's that piece of um, the, so much I, I realized, and, and in some ways I didn't realize until after I finished the book, that it was so much about vulnerability and that, 
it's so much about boys wrestling with, you know, the taboo against it, with denying it, with embracing it, with capitulating to it, with all these things that it means. Bombas has been a longtime sponsor of this show, and I got my first Bombas socks because they're a sponsor, but I kept buying Bombas socks because I actually really love them. They fit better than any other socks that I've ever had, which is a weird thing to know about socks, but you will notice it if you buy Bombas. They have a line of athletic wear socks that's actually especially cool because they're So fitted that you can wear the low-cut running socks and the heel won't constantly be slipping into your shoe. They make socks for all kinds of sports, including tennis, basketball, golf, and more. All these socks are made with a lightweight polycotton blend, which means no matter how hard you're working, your feet will stay cool, dry, and comfortable, never sweaty. Bombas socks provide support in places you didn't know you need, like your arch. Each sock is built with a special arch support system that's supportive, but not too tight. It's like a nice hug for your foot. And I'm telling you this is true. I'm wearing Bombas right now, and I can feel that little bit of arch support. And ever notice that annoying toe seam that most socks have? Bombas doesn't have that. And did you know that socks are the number one most requested item in homeless shelters? Bombas addresses that. For every pair you buy, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. Go to bombas.com slash friends today and get 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash friends for 20% off. If you listen to this podcast, you have heard about Rothy's. They make stylish shoes for women and girls out of recycled plastic water bottles. They are very comfortable and fully machine washable. Rothy's has quickly grown to a most loved gotta have them brand. It's no surprise they have over 1,000 nearly perfect reviews. They're stylish, sustainable, comfortable, washable. All you need in a pair of shoes. And they make all kinds of shoes. There are dressy pointed ballet flats and there are really cool sporty high tops. Those are the pair that I've been wearing lately. Uh, They are also a wool blend. So they are especially nice in these Minnesota winters. And because they're washable, I can wear them on days uh, like Well, this week when we've had these wild temperature swings, that means it's really cold on one day and really muddy and gross on another day. Rothy's come in an ever-changing array of colors, prints, and patterns. They're available, like I said, in a range of styles, sneakers, loafers, points, and more. They are seamlessly knit using a thread made from plastic water bottles, and they do have that plastic water bottle and wool line. Look at that. So they're ultra comfortable as soon as you slip them on. There is zero break-in period. And the fact that you can wash them means it's like getting a fresh pair of shoes every time you do that. Rothy's own and operate their manufacturing workshop where they prioritize sustainability every step of the way. Plus, Rothy's ship directly in their shoebox. There's no unnecessary packaging. These are feel-good flats in more ways than one. Check out all the amazing styles available right now at rothys.com slash WFLT. That's rothys.com, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash WFLT to get your new favorite flats. Comfort, style, sustainability. These are the shoes you've been waiting for. There's where this interesting to me, what I I took to calling in my head like fake sophistication comes in because there's an awareness of what vulnerability means, that they don't have it. They were able to talk to you about their cold fathers and about the lack of, of, I 
shouldn't say training, but like the lack of communication they had around sex. And so they know what vulnerability is, which may be a step forward of sorts. I think there's a generation that probably couldn't even articulate the thing that was missing from their lives, but they don't know how to achieve this vulnerability. They don't know how to get there. Yeah. Right. Um, And there's also this other interesting piece of sophistication without experience, which is the good guy problem. Right. Right. Which takes up a lot of your book. Um, And I think it's maybe one of the most important things. Yeah. The difference between the good guy and the monster. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I actually almost, for a while, I obviously I had to call it boys and sex because I called the other one girls and sex, even though it makes it really hard to carry around um, (laughs) publicly. Um, That's actually interesting. Girls and sex you can see on the subway and not think twice about it, but boys and sex you can't. And well, I felt that person, but actually, you know, the, the Instagram subway creatures, uh-huh. um, they, it's, it's like a big Instagram thing. Okay. Um, they they sh- had a picture of it yesterday with a guy reading Boys and Sex on the subway in New York, so. As though that were like a taboo thing. Yes. Y- yeah, but also like, yay. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. No, they were like, it was cool. like, this is cool. So right. that was, so, so maybe there's that taboo, but I, now I forgot what the question was. Oh, it was about the good guy. The good guy problem. So I, cause I really thought about I bet about people in this, this room are very familiar with the good I, guy problem. I, I, I thought about calling this book, um, I know I'm a good guy, but, because I heard that so many times from boys. I know I'm a good guy, but, and then they would tell me a way that they weren't a good guy, uh, or they had fallen from the pedestal of good guy. And it was something that, um, it was inevitably something they had never talked about before with another adult or often with a friend. Um, and it was this, this problem that we talk in this very binary way where, you know, if you, all, anybody who assaults is a monster and only monsters assault. And so getting back, I mean, I don't like to overstate the um, part of this book that's about assault, but obviously that's there. And when we do that, we don't, you know, it, it forces us to be blind to the kind of um, coercion and misconduct that good guys engage in because good guys, you know, they can do bad things. And how we create accountability for that, how we deal with that, how we, how they deal with that um, was really interesting to watch. And again, I think there's a kind of progress here, which is that all the boys you talk to, I assume most, yeah. wanted to be good guys, which is kind of progress to me. Well, like, it's not just that even. It was also they, that they recognized when they weren't. Right, right. That they were wrestling with issues, like like a boy who, uh, there's that chapter is framed by a boy who's talking about um, an incident where uh, at camp, and, and he um, was hooking up with a girl and... Uh, had intercourse with her and she did not say yes she did not say no and afterwards he thought "Uh uh-oh not sure she wanted that and he really didn't know and then they had consent definitely consensual sex several times and then she cut him off stopped speaking to him entirely and he was still a year had gone by and he was still like really wrestling with this and wondering if like what happened and 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 he said at first he was really hurt but then he thought maybe he had you know, done something not non-consensual with her and he wasn't sure. I don't know. You know, maybe she was fine with it. Maybe she was, you know, uh, it, maybe she wasn't. And then she had sex with him several times to make herself try to be fine with it and then cut him off, you know, because she was done. Maybe, you know, I, it, it's impossible to say because he never talked to her again. But what was interesting to me about it was that he was struggling with it. And that I think, you know, 
maybe even five years ago, I'm not sure that boy would have been even thinking about that. In that same sort of genre of problem, you, you talk about some studies and you also, this came up with the boys that you interviewed. Everyone knows what consent is. It's not, a, yeah. it's not something people joke about. I, I am old enough to remember when uh, that was something. Antioch. Antioch College had the consent like rules and the new, everyone mocked it. I, mm-hmm. I don't, I probably did. Um, and now everyone knows what consent is. You talked to a couple of boys who are actually on like the consent training mm-hmm. yeah. squad. Uh, for their colleges. So mm-hmm. everyone knows what consent is. Everyone wants to practice consent. And yet... And yet. Um, and yet, there's research by um, Nicole Badera, who is um, a sociologist in Michigan, and she uh, found that boys' idea of consent can be kind of elastic. And that while they can define... they All, all the boys she talked to, and these were guys who were in college and had been through consent trainings, um, had could define consent. But then she asked them to describe... Um, an experience of sex in a hookup and in a relationship, most, their most recent experience. And uh, when their actions did not fit that definition, they expanded the definition rather than looking at their actions so that even in some cases, um, encounters that would be reached the definition of assault, uh, they had managed to make consensual. And that's not, you know, that that's what people do. They go in, in order to maintain that good guy facade. I mean, you all know... Um, the Brock Turner case, right? Um, so Brock Turner, uh, that was his, one of his big defense was he was a good guy, right? He, I, I in no way meant to, was, was trying to rape that girl, was what he said. You know, I, I'm a good guy. And he had char- um, character references, letters from friends, female friends saying, you know, he's not a guy in a dark alley. He's a good guy. He didn't do it. You know, so, so there's even in fact, um, Men who hold sex slaves in war zones have been found to say that um, they do not believe themselves to be rapists. It's the other guy. It's the monster. So there, it's and and I had that experience. I mean, even if I may go one more beat on this, when um, I went to a um, I went to a freshman college freshman pregame party, you know, because that's not awkward um, <laughs> at all, and. Uh, and they, you know, the, I was talking to these boys and I told them that I was writing about hookup culture. I was not writing about assault. I was writing about hookup culture and I wanted to write about how kids just were perceiving consensual sex. But they assumed I was writing about assault. So they started talking to me. These were kids who were at an elite college. And they said, well, you know, it's really only boys at those state schools that do that stuff. <laughs> and I'm telling you, I heard that all the time from boys at elite colleges. Or that fraternity, not our fraternity. That fraternity, not our fraternity. Exactly. We're not, we're not you know, we're, we're, we don't do that stuff. It's those other guys. And, um, and I will also say that there was just a giant report out from the American Association of Universities that, does, that tracks these things. And they have found no change in assault rates um, in the last five years among the most elite colleges. Um, so not true. But anyway, I was talking to these guys and they said, you know, it's those guys at the state schools. And I said, well, you know, Brock Turner went to Stanford. And one of the guys said, oh, yeah, but he was an athlete. He wasn't there on merit. <laughs> so that denial can go pretty deep. And that's, again, why I think that we have to not just talk to boys, you know, about what consent is. And I do define it really clearly in the book, but also what gender and power dynamics we are socialized into that might allow us to 
ignore or stretch those definitions in inappropriate ways. And not just boys, but, you know, but girls too, the ways that we learn to capitulate, to go along, to get along, to just go, oh, well, I guess, you know, one of the girls, I, I don't talk to a lot of girls in this book, but I did after that pregame go back um, the next day to the dorm after they um, went off to the frat party. And I had a conversation with girls and boys. And one of the girls said, it's not that you feel obligated exactly to have sex with a guy, um, you know, if you go back to their dorm drunk or whatever, but, you know, there's this like expectation. So you feel like, well, you know, and this guy is sitting there and he just went, I had no idea girls felt that way. I had no idea girls felt that way. Again, there's this, there's a, this comes up a couple times in the book and it's an illustration of, you know, centered people don't have to think about non-centered people, right? Which is that all these boys talk to you about blowjobs and you ask them, well, did you go down on her? And there's like, they're, it like blows their mind, it seems like. So to speak. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like they just, it's like, what? Well, in, a, in, in a relationship, that's Right, different. right, right. But the, but the idea that you would do something that was pleasurable for a woman. In a hookup situation. In a hookup yeah. situation. So in, in hookups, there's a gigantic orgasm gap. And it shrinks markedly <laughs> in, um, in relationships. Yeah. And, and Lisa Wade, who wrote one of my favorite books on hookups, which is American Hookup, um, said that boys consciously or unconsciously use withholding of orgasm as a way to signal a partner's lack of value to them. Um, and what was interesting to me, so I was very aware of that from girls and sex. But the thing that that slight you know shift in boys and sex was that Guys would tell me they were actually interested in female satisfaction. They just didn't define it the way we might. They defined it <laughs> as, as an um, orgasm. Yeah, no, that was not the definition. And the hookup, you know, generally, sorry. sorry. <laughs> like, I'm just curious about the alternate Honor definition. Is losing it. Um, like, like, what's the what's the alternate definition? <laughs> um, it was about um, male stamina. In intercourse and penis to a lesser extent penis size. So as because because a hookup is not about what happens between two people. A hookup is about the story you're gonna go back and tell your friends. And so what like one guy said to me that he got a sophomore in college in Boston said um, he got in the habit of looking at the clock before he started having intercourse because he wanted to make sure that he, you know, last what he felt was a respectable amount of time. And he said it's not really about her pleasure, it's about you know not wanting to be embarrassed when she goes back and talks to her friends, not wanting her to say that she was disappointed. And so it's like collusion, because that's what girls are doing too. That's how girls are going back and talking about it. And he said, it, you know, it turned sex into a task for me to a certain extent, one that I, you know, kind of enjoy, but I'm not in the moment. Yeah, I'm like holding laundry. Maybe a little bit, but, but, but it was interesting to me because it sort of was 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 showing me, uh, you know, you when I read when I wrote Girls and Sex, looking at that from girls' point of view, it's kind of like, what the heck is going on here? Why is nobody, you know, caring about female sexual pleasure? What are you getting out of a hookup if that's not what you're doing? Um, but it became more apparent and clear how those dynamics worked and what was going on in people's heads and the kind of misunderstanding of what a gratifying sexual relationship was, or actually they did understand it, just what, that wasn't the purpose of that relationship. I feel like this is another example of this fake sophistication, which is that they're very well educated about bodies, right? They watch, their porn is a huge 
suppose um, you would call that educated. Fake sophistication. Yeah. They know all the parts. They've seen the parts. They've seen parts interacting in a very particular way. In yes. a very particular way. Mm -hmm. They know what a female orgasm is. Like, they know it they happens. They know it exists. They know it exists, yeah. right? They know that going down on a woman exists, yeah. right? Um, but no one's talking about, like, how these pieces fit together in a, in a different way. Right. Like, or how you create a, 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 a experience that would, you know, work for both of you. And, and part of that, I mean, part of it is because a hookup, and, and I, I, I define hookup, but hookup culture is something else. So I, I just want to give put that out there, that hookup culture is the idea that um, sexual contact precedes emotional intimacy rather than derives from emotional intimacy. And that what is different, because I think, as a lot of you know, this generation did not invent casual sex. Um, <laughs> but, but it became the normalized path to a relationship, even though most hookups don't result in a relationship, because you're supposed to be, as Lisa Wade said, less friendly after a hookup than you were before. And in order to create that environment, I started thinking about it like, okay, um, you have, you know, kids talk about catching feelings, right? That's another one of these That's phrases. a wonderful phrase. Like it's a disease, you know, like you catch chlamydia, you catch gonorrhea, you catch feelings, you wouldn't want to do that. So to avoid the, um, you know, the gonorrhea and the chlamydia, you got to wear a condom, um, hopefully. Which seems like... Mm, maybe they do, maybe they don't. Yeah. But to avoid the feelings, you've got to put on your emotional condom. And with your emotional condom, this is, I just came up with this yesterday. The visual of it, it is pretty great. And the emotional say. condom, what is it made of? Alcohol, right? Because alcohol, that's good, isn't it? Um, alcohol is what creates, Lisa calls it the compulsory carelessness necessary for a hookup. And it, it establishes the meaninglessness of what's happening as opposed to hooking up sober which would actually be meaningful. Yeah. So, you know, when you got two people who are, the trick becomes them because they are aware of consent. They are aware of the new, you know, ideas about consent. Finding somebody who is drunk enough to say yes and being yourself drunk enough to say yes to get over that, you know, generational fear of the awkward. Um, and, but not somebody who is too drunk to be able to consent. And, you know, where is that line and who's to be the judge of that one? So it, the hookup culture, you know, it can it can just get, become a very murky um, kind of a place for kids. And and what one of the boys said to me was, you know, the, the sex, even when it's consensual and everybody's on board and everything, usually not that great if you don't know somebody very well and you're drunk. And what he said was, you know, and again, back to this word, he said, uh, it's like, um, you know, two people have very distinct experiences and there's not a lot of eye contact and there's not a lot of conversation. And it's like you're acting vulnerable, but you're not being vulnerable with someone that you don't know or care about very much. It's, and he said it's not even really very fun. <laughs> and it's so interesting because it is the play acting of vulnerability, right? You are literally yeah. in the one of most vulnerable positions that a human being can be in. Yeah. But you're not making eye contact. Yeah. Do you experience stress or have anxiety or chronic pain or have trouble sleeping? You're not alone, obviously. Many of us do. CBD oil has been shown by some studies to be effective for those issues. And there's a CBD company that wants to help you. It's called Feels. Feels is a premium CBD product delivered directly to your doorstep. I have a trainer who 
absolutely swears by CBD. She has sort of, I guess you could say, prescribed it to me for everything from muscle soreness to anxiety. Uh, and also it helps me sleep better. All you need to do is place a few drops under your tongue. If you're new to CBD, Feels offers a free CBD hotline and a text message support system to help guide your personal experience. Feels works naturally to help you feel better. There's no high, there's no hangover, and there's no addiction. Join the Feels community to get Feels delivered directly to your door every month. You'll save money on every order, and you can pause or cancel at any time. Feels can have you feeling your best every day. Become a member by going to feels.com slash friends, and you'll get 50% off your first order with free shipping. That's F-E-A-L-S dot com slash friends to become a member and get 50% automatically taken off your first order. Feels.com slash friends. I want to return to this idea of non-centered populations having to kind of be more aware Mm -hmm. because I thought the conversations you had with young men of color and with LGBTQ people were, had illustrated that. Yeah. Um, One of my favorite things in the book, there are, there's good news in the book. There are things that are great about it and not terrifying, which I did find some of the book pretty terrifying. Um, (laughs) No, I'm just, it's, yeah, I'm just, I don't have children. I'm in, I am glad for that for many reasons. Um, and No, but this uh, is how we can, like, you know, re- make it better. Yes, it okay, make it better. Yeah, Speaking make it better. of make it better, it gets better, Dan Savage. Yes. A bright, a bright thing in this book is what he had to say about uh, gay hookup culture. Yeah. Which is much more intimate in a way. Well, like, it was conversationally intimate. Yeah. And, and the, it wasn't just Dan. I mean, we'll get to Dan, but, yeah. the, the, but gay boys really served as a kind of model. of right. I mean, there was still issues. You know, they could, they could have uh, bad communication. They could, there was assault right. in that community. There were various other issues. But they were models of how to kind of navigate and negotiate the parameters of a sexual relationship, partly because they had to be. Right. Right? I mean, because it, it wasn't obvious or assumed what was going to be happening and who was going to be doing what with whom and how. And, and you know, one of the gay guys that I talked to said, um, yeah, you know, I don't really get straight guys resistance to the consent conversation. Cause you know, if we're talking about consent, that means we're going to be having sex, you know, that's great. <laughs> so, and you also talked to one um, uh, straight young man who's like, it's hot when someone tells you, yes, do that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, there were boys that definitely said that. But so Dan Savage, who's a syndicated columnist in Seattle, sex columnist, um, said that he that the four magic words he calls them that gay guys will use at the beginning of an encounter are "What are you into?" And what I love about that is that it's this open-ended question that rules you know anything in and anything out, as opposed to how we so often talk about consent with straight cis people, which is that um, it's a set of pre-prescribed questions that usually a guy is asking, usually a girl, with a yes or no answer. But I do want to say one more thing about this that I've been thinking about more recently that's not in there, Um, which is um, Dan's gay and he has sex with men. I fear that if you put two young heterosexual people in a room and a guy said, what are you into? The girl might say, I have no earthly idea. Because that was what was going on in the other book. Yeah. And that was what was going on. In that. So, so I thought a lot about, like, what would it mean if you put these two books together and if you, like, wrestle with the issues and grapple with the issues in boys and sex and girls and sex, what would it mean if we could 
educate our kids and support them to get to a place where they could say, what are you into, and answer, and have the kind of gratifying, reciprocal, fulfilling relationships that we'd like them to have. I want to get to, I imagine when we get to questions, um, we will get some questions about the prescriptive parts of the book, but I want to touch on the young men of color and the mm-hmm, ways yeah. that they are able to navigate this situation, the situations around sex in what seems like a healthier or at least more um, safer uh, way, which is, they're just, they know the rules because oh, they're they non-centered. The they have to know the rules. Yeah, they have to. I mean, and they have to obey is a strong word, but I guess that's what it is. They were very, they, they, well, and, but, you know, so, so the boys of color were also a specific demographic. Right. They were in those white worlds. Um, right. So they were playing by those rules and they were, it made them highly visible. And I started thinking, especially with um, African-American boys and Asian-American boys, I thought of them as kind of um, flip sides of a coin. Mm. And white masculinity was kind of controlling the toss. So white masculinity was this like neutral thing that nothing was projected onto. And for African-American boys, there was a lot projected onto them in terms of um, hypersexuality and being fetishized, but it could also flip over and become, you know, predatory. And they carried a lot of anxiety around that and it took a big psychological toll for them. So yes, they were, they were much more conscious but they were also much more worried. And they would say things like one guy said to me, um, you know, I'm not going to go party with a bunch of drunk white kids because anything could happen. And if I'm the only black guy in the room, I'm the only black guy in the room, you know? Yeah, I feel, I guess I should should clarify what I was thinking, which is I, I do think they're a better able to navigate these treacherous waters. Um, it doesn't mean that they're having fun doing it. It doesn't mean that it's good or they should have to do the kinds of things they're having to do. Right. But they were very clear. They were much more. But, you know, it's, well, yes. And, and, and then on the flip side, I just wanted to say that, that Asian-American yes. boys then were, um, if African-American boys were, were, were treated as hypersexual, Asian-American boys were, treated as, were projected, asexuality was projected onto them. And you know, and um, non-masculinity, and that was a different kind of struggle. So one guy um, was telling me about matching with a girl on Tinder, and they went back and forth for a while. And then the girl said, "You know, well, we could be friends, but no offense, I don't date Asian guys." And he looked at me and just went, "How is that no offense?" <laughs> you know? Yeah, I mean, I. I don't know how you would put that together as yeah. no offense. So, it's, it is, you know what? The only way that counts as no offense, it's a same thing as hilarious in a way. It's yeah. if you don't consider that other person's feelings or desires to be real. Ooh, good. <laughs> I, like I get that. an A yeah. from Peggy. Um, no, totally. And and but it's um but like she didn't consider him a sexual person, right? right? So she she could say no, no offense. No yeah. offense. I and you see that you. you know you see these those those attitudes towards African American um, boys and different you know th- there's there's a different kind of gendered racism towards girls of color um, than towards boys of color, and you can see it threading through um, surveys they do on Match.com of who is desirable or um, you, there's a lot of racism on dating apps, a lot of racism on dating apps. Um, no blacks, no Asians, really common. And no offense. No offense, yeah. And and we it's interesting to me because this generation, as you were pointing out, they're like very aware in a lot of ways, very conscience conscious, very social, you know, social justice oriented, um, you know, conscious of bias and stuff. But they leave a lot of that at the door when it comes to social and sexual 
dynamics, and they don't really examine in the ways, in the same ways, ideas about gendered racism and ideas about sexual racism. Now, I never interview someone for this program whose book I don't recommend, but I do feel particularly urgent about Peggy's book. We are at this critical juncture. And you don't just have to be the parent of a boy to find this book as urgent as I did. I think it's incumbent upon all of us to take advantage of this critical moment in our culture. And although, as I said, I found the book very disturbing, it has some really important and ultimately hopeful messages. So, you know, go check it out. And until next week, please take care of yourself.